You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Hi, Lacey. Thank you so much for joining us on the Australian Finance Podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Kate. Looking forward to it. Now, you're just stuck with me today. There's no Owen here because he's had a bit of a run with the microphone recently. So um, hopefully I can do us both justice. I'm sure you will. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I wanted to get you on the podcast because you've you're you've talked a lot recently about the concept of financial independence through your book, Money School, and, and your business as well, um, and a really awesome conference you've got coming up um, in the next week or so. So I really, I was so excited to get you on so we could actually talk a bit about your own financial independence journey and a little bit about how could someone work out if the goal of financial independence and potentially retiring early is for them. Mm, yeah, well, they're great topics and obviously I love talking about them. So yeah, very <laughs> excited to be chatting through those. Awesome. So I thought we could kick it off with a little bit of a background on your own personal journey to financial independence, um, how you discovered the concept of financial independence and um, some of the things that motivated you to pursue that goal. Mm, Well, I think a lot of people probably listening to this podcast have heard the term FIRE before, the financial Mm. independence retiring early. And I actually didn't hear that term until I got to it, which was pretty funny. (laughs) (laughs) So... um, I think the concept of financial independence needs to be separated out somewhat from the retiring early to to talk about Mm. because I think financial independence really reiterates for a lot of people what they've probably heard from mum and dad and from their grandparents over those years and it's it's that idea of putting your money to work for you um, so that you build up 
uh, enough assets that they can pay you and then work becomes optional. And of course, in the olden days, it used to be that you worked for a company and they paid you a pension. That's what you got for your lifetime of servitude. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> these days, people are having to take a lot more control over it because that's not so common anymore. And I guess that's what I sort of got to witness with happening with my mother. And that's how I started learning about investing and the importance of money and then eventually getting to financial independence. Her dad had the typical worked for a company for 40 or 50 years, got a sweet pension um, and life was grand. And, of course, mm. my mum was a single parent raising two girls and my parents split uh, when I was eight. And so I started hearing a lot more about money and the decisions she was making. And it was that that phase of um, work not being so much about staying in the same company for decades anymore and building up those pensions. Mm. And so she started getting interested in investing and learning about it. She didn't have any money to do anything with at that time. This was when I was sort of in late primary school. But she was really keen to learn about it. And because she'd been working as a bookkeeper and then an accountant, she'd been seeing what other people had been doing with their money and had been talking to me about that sort of stuff. Ah. Yeah, lucky me. And I hadn't realised, <laughs> I had. I honestly didn't realise until I was in, um, you know, my 20s that not everybody's parent did that for them. You know, hmm. I, I hadn't really thought about the fact that my mum was, you know, she was frequently telling me little stories and snippets and planting little seeds. None of the big lectures. There wasn't like a sit down, Lacey, we're going to learn all about in shares today. <laughs> and get out your notebook for the next three hours or anything like that. It was just little snippets and regular and common to talk about. And she'd talk about that sort of stuff in the context as well of making decisions with the money that she had, How what were we going to do on a holiday, what kind of car would mm. we buy, you know, what could we afford for a mortgage, that kind of stuff. And I, I just had that happening and didn't really think about the fact that not everybody's parent talks about that stuff. There's quite a, mm. a taboo on it for some families. Yeah. And um, not every parent knows as well because if your parents didn't teach you about it, then how would they know? And, and it wasn't really strong in education schools. It's still a bit sort of sporadic. I would say we're getting much better, but our financial mm. literacy stuff still doesn't look great. <laughs> bit of work to do there. Um, yep. you know, so I guess if you don't hear about from mum and dad, you know, how do you ever learn? So I'm just I'm one of those lucky people that had mum and dad telling me about it. Dad was more from the perspective of what not to do, poor man. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was really good having the two examples in front of me of my mum of being careful with what she spent, learning to invest and when she finally did have some money, which, by the way, was her late 40s, um, starting to do investing and, and talking me through the process. And then my dad, who just money, he loves spending money. He would buy beautiful cars and beautiful clothes and um, mm. he ended up going bankrupt. So um, pretty <sighs> interesting examples to have side by side. Yeah, so I guess that's what sort of happened. I just got I got little bits of it and then it got me excited. And then when I was 10, I started my first business. And I guess I was doing that as part of a school fate thing originally, but um, it ended up growing and I ended up with five of my uh, friends as my employees, which is pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I've always been quite bossy. Uh, leadership skills, mm. I'm supposed to say now. I'm not bossy, of course, but yes. never mind. You know what I mean? <laughs> I still have to do this. <laughs> exactly. Um, and my mum asked me when we were on our way to our first market, what was I going to do with the money that we made? And I was talking about, oh, I suppose I could spend it. And then she explained compounding to me, explaining it like money breeding. Um, you know, your money makes more money and then it just keeps going. And I was, mm. I was amazed. And remember back then, that was like the early 90s, which will give you a bit of an idea of my age, interest rates were astonishingly high. Um, you mm. know, like mortgages in the late 80s were 15% plus. It'd be like buying a house on a credit card, right? So, um, <laughs> you know, the interest we're talking about is much higher than it was compared to today's rates. And, of course, so a few calculations with that and I was blown away. That was it. I was hooked. And so, yeah, from 10 really it started. And then I just got interested in earning as much as I could through high school. 
And then when I got to university, got interested more in investing myself and started investing when I was 19. And so I just kept going with that. I bought property to start with, bought a few properties and then got into shares. And then one day when I was um, finishing up work because I was having my first child, we were working out whether I needed to go back to work. And I went, oh, look at that. I've got enough money to cover our living costs from my shares and my properties. Wow, that's pretty cool. I don't think I had um, deliberately tried to get to a certain amount. It just happened to be that I was sort of thinking about what I was going to do. And like, I, it's not that I didn't have a plan to be financially independent. I definitely wanted to have enough assets. I just hadn't mm. thought about the implication of work options and hadn't expected yeah. to get there quite so young. So very fortunate position to be in. Lots of good timing about that. But um, thanks, mum and dad, for teaching me about money. <laughs> Yeah, so there wasn't really you didn't set up set off at twenty to become financially independent. You just wanted to start investing and compounding your money, and you sort of realised at one point um, that you were financially independent. Exactly, which sounds like this happy accident, doesn't it? But it wasn't quite like <laughs> that. It was more that um, I was earning a good wage as an engineer, and look, I've always saved half of every dollar that I've ever earned since mm. I first had that business and earning pocket money and stuff. So um, that's been a thing that I have done my whole life. So I've just the concept of waste was something that really connected to me. I, I thought if I was saving all this money, I should be doing something with it or I should be, you know, producing something with it or putting it to work mm. for me. And I, I just, I'm cheap to run, so I didn't see any point in trying to spend more as my income <laughs> increased. I just didn't want more things. <laughs> I still had lots of fun, you know. I like travelling and I like good food and wine, but just things like cars and clothes don't really interest me at all. So I'm quite lucky mm. in that respect that I haven't had high ongoing living costs um, to indulge in luxuries, but it was more that idea of not wasting. I thought I would try and get to get to that point where I had enough assets to cover my income at some point. I just didn't quite expect to get there so early, and a lot of that's to do with lucky timing. You know, I had a, I'm very lucky that I graduated into a mining boom with a set of skills mm. that were in high demand, um, and also you know got in at a time when the market looked terrible for property. You know, everybody was really depressed. Not dissimilar to what you would expect to find right now with such low interest rates doesn't seem to have actually eventuated, um, but just glad that I had the guts to do it. It was, it was a bit of timing luck there. But, yeah, then all of a sudden, yeah, did the calculation. Wow, look at that. I don't have to work if I don't want to. We can afford to cover our food and our rent and we're all okay. Um, so that was a very pleasant surprise. And then a couple of years later I started learning about there was an actual movement about this, fire. Um, hmm. And although I'd had the experiences of mini retirements, the retiring early bit didn't really do it for me because it's quite boring after a few months. You'll have to take my word for it. <laughs> Yeah, I find that most people um, retire early is just sort of code for do what I want with my time. <laughs> exactly. It is exactly right, you know. you hear, And I think a lot of people will hear retire early and go, oh, I'm never going to retire early. So they decide it's not for mm. them, which is why I really like the idea of separating the concept of financial independence from whatever you do once you become financially independent, whether that is retire early or whether you work harder or run a startup or um, volunteer mm. or look after your family, whatever you do. Uh, separating the concept of the financial independence from what you do with your time afterwards, I think helps more people connect to the idea and make it feel a bit more achievable. Mm, absolutely. I mean, my my parents are probably legitimate retirement age, but they don't even want to be called retirees. They're, <laughs> they're just deciding they're, um, they're running their, um, I don't know, businesses. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know what business it is, but uh, they just don't want to be sort of identified by that moniker as, as a retiree, yeah. even though that might be appropriate for them at this stage. <laughs> and that's not unusual, right? Because like, hmm. I, I can't imagine stopping, like doing nothing, you know, but then I, you know, a lot of people do enjoy it. It's that, it's that point of them having a choice, right? 
if they get a mm. choice about how they want to spend their time, then you've really got where you want to go. And if your money helps you get there, then, gee, that's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. So I thought we'd dive in a little bit further on how could someone thinking about the concept of financial independence and potentially retire early, how could they decide if work out if that goal might be something that suits them and works in with their life? Mm, it's a it's a really important point about the deciding whether it works for you because there is no right or mm. wrong here, right? So there will be people who just go, look, that's not for me and that's fine. My theory with this is you've got to decide whether you're the sort of person who's motivated by long-term goals or happy to just plot along uh, without mm. a, you know, a long-term goal to work towards. So there's a lot of people I imagine who are listening to this podcast who are like, no, I want a goal. I know how much my money needs to be. <laughs> I know what my retirement fund size needs to be. And I talk about retirement fund in the outside of superannuation sense there. Um, there'll mm. be people who are like that who go, yeah, I've got a goal. This is what I'm shooting for. And they have a very clear plan. And if you're like that, then all the stuff around the financial independence movement is helpful for you because it's a very long-term focused movement. And, yeah. and having that long-term goal, especially it might seem hard when you're in your 20s to think about decades ahead, but that time's mm. going to pass anyway, right? So having a goal is quite a useful thing because, you know, you're actually working towards something. But if you yeah. are not the sort of person who likes a long-term goal, who doesn't need that goal post in the future, this can still work for you, just so you know. You can be a bit like me where you've, you're have you still just plodding along and then suddenly one day you go, oh, look, I'm in a better financial situation than I thought I was. There's nothing that I think the FIRE movement or the financial independence stuff that you do does that robs you of anything. I mean, some people will have mm. this feeling of, oh, well, you have to live like a monk. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's not really true. It's up to you to design it how you want it to be. Um, living like a monk just gets you there faster is the theory. That's for people who really want to get there when they're young. That's the people who have that, that, that goal that they want to get there within, you know, a decade or so. But even if you just do small things now, you know, save a little bit more now, uh, get into investing earlier and small amounts of investing without taking on huge amounts of debt, that kind of stuff, then one day, in 10, 20 years' time, you'll wake up and you'll be in a better financial situation than you could have thought if you had done nothing at this point. So I think it's very low risk for people to do some of the actions associated with becoming financially independent. You're only ever going to really put yourself in a better financial situation by having a buffer fund, by having some investments, by having some source of income beyond your job, right? So I think it's pretty mm -hmm. low risk. Yeah, that's what that's what I think as well. When people say, "Oh, you're not, you, there's no way you can achieve your goal by X, Y, Z," and it's kind of like, well, even if you don't get there, you're in such a better financial position than you were before. You know a lot more. Mm. You've sort of designed your life a lot better. So I think even just yeah, taking some elements out of it, even though you, if you don't want to say your goal is financial independence, yeah, just thinking about some of the elements of the movement and the idea of financial independence can put you in a lot better stead. Exactly. And it's not really that new as a concept. If you read books like, uh, you know, The the Richest Man in Babylon, you know, th these mm. concepts of becoming financially independent, of having assets that pay you an income have been around since money was invented, like 3000 plus BC. <laughs> mm. um, we get this tendency because it's got a bit of popularity at the moment and there's some, some people who are, you know, new and exciting to think that this is a brand new concept. It's really not. It's been around for ages. Mm. <laughs> it's just that we don't learn about it, which is the frustrating part because <laughs> we really yeah. should be learning about it because the sooner you start, and I think that's the thing I've had when I look at my friends who are now in their mid to late 30s and they've got families and they didn't do this stuff, it's a harder slog for them to get there. They've got less time, less of a runway, you might say, if you like that kind of idea of, a, you know, a longer runway gives you a smoother <laughs> takeoff. That's quite a nice yeah. analogy. So it, it's harder to catch up. Whereas if you learn this stuff when you're in high school or at university or in your early 20s, gee, you're much further ahead of the game. 
Mm, and I think that's that's often what I see on fire uh, blogs and forums. They say the, their biggest regret is they didn't start investing and learning about money in their twenties mm. um, because they're, they're now playing catch up. And it's still still achievable. I've seen seen definitely stories of people that have achieved financial independence after starting in their thirties and forties and fifties. But it's it's just going to look quite different for you. Yeah, and it's that speed thing, right? When you start when you're young and it's a little bit, you don't have to pay as much attention because the power of time is on your side. The compounding effect yeah. goes for longer. I think it's going to be very interesting in this next decade when we look at the, the fallout from the coronavirus and what's happening with our economy, which kind of makes me think that even if you haven't started yet and you're in your 30s, then, hey, maybe you're not in a bad position if you get onto it in the next couple of years. <laughs> you might not have mm. lost too much runway there. Um, <laughs> you never know. No one's got a crystal ball. Mm. But, um, yeah, it is one of those things I think if you're, if you're young and listening to this, just little actions sooner make a huge impact and you can't underestimate that. Mm, absolutely. And do you, do you think there's any examples or situations where someone might want to become financially independent and even though they try their best, it's just not possible? Oh, definitely. There's plenty of situations like that. So I think about my mum when she was a single parent and looking after two kids and, you know, we were eight and six when my parents split up. And although my dad did contribute financially, it was very erratic because he ran his own business. Mm -hmm. And also because he ran his own business, of course, um, anyone who's run their own business knows that if people don't do their deductions very well, that can represent a lower income than perhaps is real. So having done Mm -hmm. my books for my dad for a couple of years, (laughs) I know he was um, (laughs) probably paying less childcare than than he really had to. Um, and since he's, you know, now absolved all his debts with the tax office, I can talk about that. Um, but I think, you know, a situation like that for my mum, she was keen to start investing, wanted to do it, mm. knew the theory, but there was just, there was literally no money spare. There was nothing. She yeah. was a magician with money. She stretched every dollar like to five. It was incredible what she could achieve with a small income. And, you know, my, my sister and I never felt like we went without. You know, I know we didn't have flashy holidays. We had, you know, the one-week trip to the Gold Coast from Brisbane um, to stay in a motel each year <laughs> as opposed to, you know, a fancy overseas trip. But I don't remember ever feeling like I was lacking. But mm. the impact is she had no extra money to save and then invest. She had some savings as a buffer but couldn't afford to start buying shares or property or anything like that. And that was a good 10 years you know, from when I was eight to about 18, when she just didn't Mm -hmm. have spare cash. But then while she had been working through that period, she was getting promotions, getting paid a bit more. I started looking after myself. My sister started looking after herself and we both moved out of home. Suddenly Fran had more money. And at Mm -hmm. that point she'd had such good discipline about saving that she had capital that she could very quickly deploy. And she'd been learning about it as she went. So I, I think for people that might be in similar situations, maybe they're struggling to get work Maybe they have high outgoings relating to their family. They've got care responsibilities. You know, those are people who are going to look at financial independence and just go, oh, it's just not for me. And you might be right right now and you might be right for the next decade or two. Who knows? We don't know what's going to happen. But if you learn about Mm -hmm. it now and you start putting in the disciplines about saving now, then when you do have some spare cash, then you can jump onto it quicker. Then you don't have that moment of, oh, no, I've got some money. What shares should I buy? How do I buy shares? Um, If you've thought about Mm -hmm. that already, you're ready to go. So I think um, there are people in that situation where, yeah, you you won't feel like it's achievable for you, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't learn about it and be prepared for when the opportunity comes around. And then, of course, there's people who have retired. I speak to a lot of people who have retired who are keen to improve their financial situation you can probably improve it and, and tweak it, but your chances of getting to financial independence once you stopped earning your own income is much harder. Mm. It'd be very hard to do it on an Australian pension considering it's so low. It's basically our poverty line. Mm. 
Yeah, and it's just sort of enough to get by. It's not really enough to put any extra aside. Exactly, total subsistence living. We are, I think it was number 31 or 33 out of 35 OECD countries for how much we put into pension. It's embarrassing for a country Mm -hmm. like us to have put so little into our pension. And that doesn't look like changing significantly in the short term. Mm. And I think it it was only this year I sort of realised how low the sort of Centrelink payments were before coronavirus. Uh, I hadn't really put much thought into that before and then just um, some of the articles coming out about saying well let's not put it back to where it was before mm. um, um, I was just a mate like bad, bad I don't know oh, <laughs> I, I was agree. shocked I about totally agree. yeah how, how do people even survive off that well and the irony of this right so th- that super low level of subsistence living where you are scraping mm-hmm. by and every day you are worried about can I afford my rent and my food actually yeah like creates financial stress, which affects your IQ, which means you make worse decisions. So the irony Mm. is we keep people in this state of stress and worry and concern and it makes their lives worse because they make worse decisions. We we actually end up with this manufactured situation and that's where there's a lot of tension, I think, with our government, um, this perception of, oh, you need to work or contribute to earn your money. Well, look, if you take away that financial stress and put that 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 floor under people so they feel like they're not going to lose their home, they're going to be able to afford to eat, you've got a better chance of them actually succeeding in life and finding employment that they can then support themselves with. But we kind of, we make it like, oh, you've got to go first. You've got to find the job first and get the income first and then mm-hmm. you'll be okay. I, Yeah, it's an interesting time. But I think, yeah, that raise the rate that people are talking about, raising that basic rate makes a lot of sense to me because I, yeah, even looking at the pension, I don't know how people survive on the pension. They're magicians, these people, extraordinary. <laughs> mm. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's definitely going to be interesting to sort of see what comes out of this um, this year and whether that is changed for good. Mm, absolutely. And let's hope it does. I would really appreciate that if it did. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. Now, I wanted to ask, what are some examples of maybe some hard choices you had to make on your journey to financial independence, even though you weren't possibly maybe aware you were on that journey you did say that you saved 50 cents in the dollar so that's that's probably meaning you did have to make some sacrifices <laughs> in your 20s yeah I guess it probably sounds like that doesn't it the funny thing is I don't feel like I missed anything important um and mm-hmm. I don't know if this is because I spent a lot of time hanging out with people at high school I went I went to a state primary school which was very average and then I got a scholarship to um, an elite private school for high school mm. and uh, because we couldn't have afforded to go there either like, if I hadn't got that I, I would have been going to the local, local state school but mm. um, I was suddenly thrown in with a bunch of people who had a lot more money now most people would look at a private school and go like oh well everyone's got money well my experience is that's not the truth. Probably, you know, 20% of them have got heaps of money, but the other 80% are families that are making big sacrifices to get their children there. Mm. You know, I had one friend whose parents were, both parents were working two jobs each just to be able yeah. to afford to put the kids through school. So we get this impression that it's um, lots of people have money, but, and that might be true, maybe it's changed over the intervening 20-odd years, but my experience was mm-hmm. that, no, you still have plenty of people who worked hard. But these 10 or 20% that had ridiculous quantities of money who were talking about getting nose jobs in year 11. Um, who, yeah. Oh, seriously, we had a girl who got a nose job. Like I was like, how can you be spending money on how you look at <laughs> this package? Um, you know, things like that. I wasn't even thinking about my nose in year 11. <laughs> um, 
I yeah, it was it was a new world for me. It was something I hadn't seen before. Mm. And people who were getting given cars, like brand new, expensive cars, you know, like my first car was an eighteen hundred dollar Mitsubishi Wagner. Yeah. Um, I saw it and I just didn't emulate their behaviour or their appreciation of money at all. What I saw was a lot of being spoiled. That's what I saw. I mm. saw a lot of, and it was young women for me, whose attitudes, frankly, were really immature when it came to money. I, I didn't see their parents doing them any favours. I thought that is, <laughs> you are really making your life harder. And I meet a lot mm. of them now. Some of them have gone on to do really well financially. They've had great careers. Some of them have not. That was mm. that they, they, they have built up a behaviour of expectation of handouts and it continues into our late 30s. And I look at that and think that is uh, what a waste what a waste mm. <laughs> um not just of the money you know of your life um mm. so i guess when i saw a lot of people getting given lots of stuff and wearing fancy clothes they weren't any happier than i was they weren't mm. they didn't have a better home life than i did they didn't have a better relationship with their parents they didn't have nicer people to hang around. There was nothing that I saw apart from they were more comfortable. <laughs> um, yeah. They had a nicer flash of car or a nicer house. And, you know, like I was like, that's really cool and I, I, I get it. But it just, I was like, I, that's not how I'm going to be spending my money. So I think mm. I made a decision quite early on that I was going to focus my spending on things that really made me happy and nothing that didn't make me happy. And I suspect mm. a lot of people buy things because they feel compelled to buy things or they, they feel like they're supposed to that keeping up with the Joneses thing, that's the impression I get. A lot of people who will look around the neighbourhood and go, oh, my gosh, my car's the daggiest car. This is a bit embarrassing. I better buy a nicer car. Whereas mm. I'm like, I have the daggiest car and that's why I don't have to go to work, everybody. You're like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the payoff with my time has been worth it. And I've just had that in mm. my mind since I was, you know, in my teens. So it was never a problem for me. And also I have to say engineering is definitely an anti-fashion career and engineers are definitely <laughs> pro-reducing waste, right? So yeah. I was surrounded by people who did not care how I looked. Um, how mm. I looked did not determine what kind of job I got. It was all about my intelligence and my capabilities and yeah. my ability to deliver a, a product for them. And um, I, and people didn't really – I had to wear hard yakka to work, you know, like I wore bright orange and dark blue for the, you know, first 10 years of my career. And no one looks good in that stuff. So um, – and that was pretty deliberate choosing that career too, you know, getting to have that kind of mm. environment. But I just – it's never felt like I had any pressure to look a certain way, to own a certain set of things, and I see whenever I see that money spent. Like I, if I see a flash car, I still go – that is a deposit on a house. What a waste. <laughs> it's just how I think. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's a very long rambling answer for um, I, I don't feel like I missed out. You know, I still had expensive holidays. I still like good food. I live in a fantastic suburb. I can see the ocean from my house. Everybody's happy, but I, I just don't have – I've got hand-me-down furniture and curbside collection furniture because I just don't care. Those things don't matter to me. Um, so it's actually been a real advantage. <laughs> Yeah, so it sounds like you worked out your priorities pretty early on. Yeah, and I do really know what makes me happy now. I think that's something that mm. maybe a lot of people, when they're busy, you know, you're working and you're grinding away, you might not think about what actually makes you happy. You not, might not spend a dollar and go, mm. did I get anything out of that? <laughs> you know, yeah. there's some basic stuff you have to spend. You have to spend money on power and food and and, um, and when I say power, I mean like electricity, then that probably sounded a bit weird. Um, but you know what I mean, the basics that you have to have. But then there's that extra luxury stuff that um, every time yeah. I've spent a dollar, I've, you know, think about the, the purchases you've made that you've looked at later and gone, why did I buy that? Um, and it only took a few of those for me to go, I'm not buying that stuff again. It's just not worth it. I don't get enough happiness out of it. And I traded my time to be able to buy it. And what a silly trade that was. 
Mm. And I think I think people that have reached financial dependence often do say that like the amount of days they've been able to buy back and the time and the control and the freedom is worth a thousand cars, really. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and then there'll be people, right, who love cars. My husband loves cars, hmm. right? That's cool. He <laughs> loves cars. He loves fast motorbikes. He has one fast motorbike. That's what he has. He doesn't buy a new one each year. You know, like, mm-hmm. he doesn't get upgraded. But if it's your thing, make it your thing. But don't have all the things. Pick the few yeah. things that you get the most benefit out of. And I think if you can get that kind of focus and prioritization, it becomes a lot easier. And then you don't feel like you're giving up so much. But again, there are people who do this without giving up a lot. They just do it a lot slower. So it's just about what suits you. Mm, and not maybe not having too many expensive hobbies. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you wouldn't want to be into sailing or something like that. <laughs> mm, there are or things- skiing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there are things like that. But again, like, if that's your thing, then make that your thing. Make your life about mm. being able to afford that thing. If that's what makes you happy, go for it. But don't do skiing and right, you know, fast motorbikes. You know, pick one. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> something like that I think can help people. It's just this idea of um, I think the, the mindless consumerism stuff I think that, that really sets us back, this buying lots of clothes or buying fancy things for the insides of our house. I feel like that stuff maybe is probably the more wasteful Uh, spending and worth definitely paying attention to if you're prone to it. Mm, Absolutely. Now, one of the common reasons that people throw up when I and others talk about the idea of financial independence for the the reason they cannot possibly achieve it is starting a family. Mm. I mean, even even when I was talking to people a few years ago at the very beginning um, about learning about financial independence, they're like, oh, but what if you start a family? Then your goal's not possible. Mm. And I mean, I'm not even thinking about that at the moment, but um, <laughs> that seemed to be the, the reason everyone chucked at you. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, of course. And, and yeah. Look, I can understand that because there is a perception that children are super expensive. Um, and, mm. and that is justified when you look at childcare fees, I have to say, like 100 mm. to 150 bucks a day for childcare. Um, so, that's crazy. Yeah, I know. And that's before your rebates, of course, but still really expensive mm. in Australia. So that's why that debate at the moment about childcare being free um, and suddenly we're having to pay for it again pretty serious debate making a big impact on earnings but yes you're right there's Mm. this perception that your costs are going to go up now I've obviously got I've got two children seven and five and I was I'm in the situation where I became financially independent before my first child arrived so that Mm. was very lucky but what what people would probably be thinking is how much do your costs go up when you have kids and this is a how long is a piece of string question right (laughs) definitely so Mm. um it's about, you know, what kind of schooling you want to give them. You know, a private school is 25 plus grand a year. It's like buying a car and driving it off a cliff, you know. like it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm quoting Walid Ali there, by the way. <laughs> I didn't come up with oh, that. Okay. But, yeah. um, but it, it is. It's serious money, you know. Like if I wanted to put both my kids through private school, that would be 50 grand that I'd have to earn. And that's after tax, right? So, um, mm. you know, so I think people see things like that. They see the cost of having the child at home with food and they worry about it. So my experience now that I've got a child at seven and five is that your um, living costs do go up incrementally. So we probably spend on average ten to $15,000 more a year than we would if we didn't have children. And I know this because I know how much we spent previously and how much we spend now. Mm-hmm. And our living hasn't changed a lot. Um, yeah. And that's a factor of providing a bigger house, um, extra consumption, you know, you're using a bit more electricity, a bit more water. That stuff's not huge because once you pay for mm-hmm. it for one or two people, 
the, the extra couple don't make too much of a difference. Um, food will obviously, that expense grows over time. What my observation is, is it's the expenses of holidays. Suddenly you're not paying for two airplane tickets, you're paying for four and you've got to go during peak periods. You've got to go mm-hmm. during school holidays. It's the extracurricular stuff that your kids go into and it's how much you spend on their education and how much you're willing to give them. You know, some parents feel compelled to pay for the university education, whereas others go, no, please use HEX. Um, mm-hmm. So those are all very personal decisions and there is no right or wrong answer. And I think that's where people think, well, I have to send my kids to a private school, so suddenly I'm going to need an extra 50 grand a year if I've got two children, which means I've got to earn 75 a year. That's significant. Like that's more than we spent (laughs) in my family. (laughs) Um, So that's where people get that freak out. So I think you've got to be very careful about what your priorities are with your kids. And, of course, when they're little, you don't know. Like I still haven't decided whether we'll send our kids to private school or not. And I certainly don't have enough assets to cover the passive income for that extra cost at the moment. If I wanted to send mm. my children to a private school for high school, we would need to go and earn that money. But yeah. we would be able to. <laughs> I feel like mm. both my husband and I would just be able to go back to work. I've got my businesses. I still do some consulting. He's also an engineer. So it really is a question of priorities for us. It's not a question of mm. finances. I think some people see, oh, well, I've got to financial independence. I'm never going to earn money from an income again. That's not really true. Like lots of people are going to have little jobs that they do or some consulting that they do or you can pick up a job for a few years if you want to cover that cost. So I don't think it's a reason to say, no, I can't get to financial independence, but you might want to factor in that slightly increased cost. And then I think mm. as well, if let's say you don't get to financial independence, but part of your living costs are covered by your financial independence fund. So you've got some dividends, some rent, some yield, whatever you've got coming in, um, coupons from your bonds, interest from the bank if that ever happens into a a reasonable magnitude again. (laughs) You never know, it might happen. Um, Mm. Even if it doesn't cover all of your costs, then maybe you only have to work part-time or a part of the Mm. year. So so what's the downside again? What's what's the problem with doing that? It's going to put you in a better position, I would think, and you can make that decision when you're ready. I'm also, I'm not one of those parents that's made a lot of uh, commitments that are extracurricular. So my children, because they're young and because I'm quite lazy, don't do <laughs> lots of sports, you know, they don't do dancing, mm. things like that. They, they can if they want to, but we have a rule in our household that you have to ask twice. And none of my children, neither of my children, I should say none, like I've got thousands, um, neither of my children have asked <laughs> me more than once for anything. You know, they, I think one child mm. asked me to go dancing, another one asked for soccer, and I was like, sure, you, yeah, okay, if you want to, and they've never asked again. So... I'll wait until mm. I really care. <laughs> I remember when I was, a, um, I think, maybe 10 years old, I really wanted to do singing lessons and my parents said, well, you've got to prove your dedication to wanting to do this. So they made me, um, they said, if you want to do it, you have to um, sing at the local Estedford. Oh, wow. Um, and so I had to go off and register and I performed in front of maybe 100 people. Wow. Um, just some song and then fi- that that was proof that I was dedicated enough to have singing lessons. Holy but, uh, amazing, that, man. That is some serious dedication to do when you're a kid. I am so impressed. But, yeah, exactly, you know, like I think, yeah. you know, then I've got my, my children have got classmates that are in three or four things. You know, they've got something on the weekend, they've got a language lesson, they've got a music lesson, so your costs mm. can rack up. So it's really a question about what is important to you as a family and what your values are and being honest about it. But my, my baseline is sort of 10 to 15 grand extra a year, and that's for both kids. It was 10 when I had just one and five granny extra now with the um, second child. So it's not prohibitive in my opinion. That's not no. significant enough to say you can't get to financial independence. But if I was going to enrol them in every extracurricular activity, have every fancy mm. holiday and then send them to a private school, then, yeah, you probably have to work to cover those costs unless you're going to sell an asset or you're very lucky with your investing. 
Mm. So it might it might slow down your journey by a, a few years if you're sort of taking a more reasonable approach to it. But um, it's definitely sounds like it's still possible with a family. Yeah, definitely. And I guess the experience I've had now, so because my husband uh, and I don't have to work, so he's in his second mini retirement since we've had kids. I haven't had a mini retirement, mm. and I'll just also clarify, having a mini retirement when you're at home with a small baby, that's not a mini retirement. That is work, <laughs> just so you know. Don't, yep. I don't count that as a mini retirement. But once they become no. a bit more independent, so sort of that three plus, um, it can be a really nice time. My my husband's had two breaks at home. So he had the whole year of 2017 off at home. And then he's mm. now into month 15 of his second mini retirement because our son is at kindy. So he's still doing the two days, one week, three days the next. So he's got a lot of a home time. And so Adam has absolutely adored being able to be home with the children. He loves it, mm. really enjoys it. And having had that flexibility where he can take that time off if he wants to has been wonderful. You know, and it mm. means that we haven't had as well to do the um, the, the childcare costs that's helped, uh, being able to have mm. even just the one partner who can do all the pickups um, and we both get to go to all the concerts and all the fun stuff. So you don't feel like yeah. you're missing out <laughs> on as much, you know, like it's, mm-hmm. it, you feel like you get a bit more value out of it. So I think, you know, even if you get to the point where it means one parent can take time off or you can both work part-time, then surely that that's going to relieve the load a little bit so you can enjoy this period when they're young and they still like you which is my focus yeah. right now. <laughs> <laughs> Before they enter the teens. Yeah, and they're like, go away, mum, we don't want to know you. Yeah, so that's, I know mm. that's coming, so I'm savouring what I've got. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that sort of gets back to the the concept of having that time and that freedom, and I think kids probably appreciate I mean, I did when I was a kid. I really appreciated having the time with my parents and not having to go to before school care and after school care every day like I saw some of my friends do, um, and I got to – got to read with my parents and all that sort of stuff. And that was much more important to me than any device. Although at the time I might have really desperately wanted the latest Tamagotchi. <laughs> I, looking back as someone in their 20s, I really appreciate having that time and I don't really remember all the stuff. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I feel similar about my childhood that I, I don't remember missing, th- that I didn't have things, you know, like it's not the things, mm. it is the time. And, and I think I do it for selfish reasons. Like I hope that my children remember it and appreciate it. But if they don't, I'm doing it because I like it. I like them. Mm. <laughs> and it's pretty fun, <laughs> pretty fun to watch yeah. them grow up. And um, mm-hmm. and I would feel like I was missing out. Now, there are plenty of people who are not cut from that same cloth. They they love parts of it, but not all of it. And they'd rather someone else did some of the really mundane stuff because I have to tell you, wiping bums and changing nappies and all those things get <laughs> really really monotonous so it's perfectly Mm. fine if you don't want to stay at home being financially independent doesn't mean you have to do all that extra stuff but it does mean that you can have the freedom to choose which stuff you do (laughs) Uh, which I think is probably a bit more of an incentive um, for people who are Mm. like look I don't really want to stay at home well fine don't stay at home but do all the fun things you know have the extra holidays with them you know that kind of stuff the things that you enjoy Um, and as they get older I'm really appreciating that Mm, absolutely. And I think that threads back to the common theme throughout your book of becoming time rich. And I that was when I read it at Money School a few months ago, I think that was the thing that really stood out to me the most. Um, instead of just focusing on that financial independence retire early, focusing on becoming time rich. And I, I think that's a, such a great motivator. Um, and I wanted to hear your thoughts. Do you th- do you think that's starting to become a better motivator for people than just the thought of quitting your job? I, I think it does. You know, you think about your parents mm. who like, I don't want to retire, you know, and most of us yeah. don't want to do nothing, <laughs> you know. We want to yeah. do something, but we want a bit more discretion. And I think mm. that the retiring early has been code for that 
people sort of hear for retiring early and think, oh, do you mean I'm going to go sit on a beach and drink pina coladas for the next 50 years? <laughs> they, 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 most people have realised, but we've ended up with like this incredible plethora of acronyms. It's a fascinating Google search, the alternatives to yeah. fire. You know, there's work optional <laughs> and there's a flamingo number and there's all sorts of, you know, lean fire oh, yeah. and fat fire and, Oh, it's fascinating. I saw Coast Fire the other day. Yeah, right. That yeah. was quite interesting. Yeah, so there's so everyone's got a different take on this. And I reason so many the, I reckon the reason so many of them have come through like this is because retiring early just doesn't hit the mark. It does yeah. not say what it means. It's a beautiful acronym. We love fire, beautiful, but it doesn't do mm. it. So I think um <laughs> I was I was searching for the reason I chose time rich, like financially independent time rich, was to achieve something that was look, this is what you actually get to, and then you choose. It's the systemic mm. person in me. I want an umbrella term that all the other ones fit under. And I thought time rich worked. Um, I hope that it helps people who thought, oh, retiring early is not for me, still consider financial independence. That's what I'm trying mm. to achieve with all that that sort of renaming is people don't just hear the retire early bit and write it off. They go, oh, time rich, I could do that, um, and, and actually start learning about it and get interested in their money. That's what I'm trying to get to. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think that's a – a better way to sort of frame it, especially when you're setting goals, because if your goal on your board is just retire early, it's probably not as inspiring as actually having that time back and actually thinking about all the things you could do with that time. Yeah, exactly. And and finding that alternative, I, I feel like we get, or a lot of people get stuck to a grindstone sort of feeling. And of course, when you have children, it actually gets worse because you've got so much else to keep you busy. You're kind of like, I'll just keep mm-hmm. going on autopilot with work. And it would be really yep. disappointing to wake up in a couple of decades time and be like, ah, I really wish I'd designed that better Um, because you can Mm. design it better. And I guess that's the other thing as our mainstream narrative is work till you're in your mid to late 60s and then retire. And it's just not feasible so much for people as well. I also get quite concerned about young people's ability to earn a sustainable income that allows them to do that, you know. We've got a very Mm. old system that relied on people being able to find steady, stable jobs and it's just not how it's likely to be. The gig economy is not serving Mm. that purpose and so... I feel like there's a there's a risk there that as well you're going to find yourself stuck working into your 70s and 80s because you can't afford to retire even with the pension, which mm. is a big risk. Yeah, yeah, and who knows what the pension's going to be like in 50 years? Oh man, if we even have one, yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Well, having having seen the trend over the last however many years we've had it, you know, like it's been decades, right? Um, mm. it, it hasn't improved markedly relative to our incomes it is still low it's still our poverty line and I Mm. think that's that's not a good thing to aim for you know we want to aim for something a little bit more comfortable I would think most people Mm. yeah absolutely and one of the last questions I want to ask you because it's it's sort of venturing a little bit off the topic of financial independence but something I notice that you do a lot in your newsletter and your book and even your upcoming um, money debates is you encourage people to think about financial topics a little bit more critically and actually look at both sides of the issue. Mm. Um, and I thought you might have some some top, um, some ideas on how to approach our finances and the information we consume a little bit more critically. Yeah, look, that's such an important point, that critical thinking. And mm. there is a human inclination, I think, that we want a recipe. We want, we want it done for us. Just tell me yeah. what percentage do I need to save and where do I need to put it? And that's why it's really attractive when someone says to you, Here's the recipe, follow my steps and you'll be fine. And it is possible to get the kind of recipe that is a minimum effective dose for everybody. You can get those kinds of recipes, but it's very rare that it's going to be the best recipe for everybody. Mm. It's maybe going to get you all on average to do okay. 
And there will be people that it's perfect for, but then there's going to be a whole heap of people that, hey, you could have done a lot better if you just thought about it. And there's stuff to do with money, I think, that people get really um, wrapped up about. There's a right or wrong answer. There are only a few absolute right or wrongs with money, like like Mm. very few, like two or three at most. Most of it is actually about your personality, your risk profile and what your priorities are, and no one can tell you that. (laughs) Only Mm. you know that, right? And so this (laughs) is the argument for you needing to think about this stuff because otherwise you pick up a recipe and you go, well, I'll just follow this. You know, it's like when you think about people's um, what they eat, your diet. And I don't mean that in the sense of losing weight diet. I mean what you eat. Some people Mm. react badly to gluten. Some people react badly to dairy. Some people don't like meat. There is no blanket rule. And you have to look at what works for you and adjust it accordingly. And if you just pick up every book or read every article or um, listen to a podcast like this and go, well, I'm going to do exactly what they say without having to think about how it fits for you, then you really, Mm. that's quite risky. Because they, they might have made an assumption that is incorrect for you. And this is, I guess, my engineering background coming through. Most of what mm. goes wrong is because people make terrible assumptions. They mm. poorly scope what they're doing. They don't. They, they think, oh, well, it must be this when it's not that thing at all, you know. And superannuation is a classic one for this. Everyone says, well, everyone, I'm going to use that very blanket term. You will hear a lot <laughs> of um, financial advisors say put discretionary income if you've got it got extra money into superannuation as voluntary contributions whereas someone Mm. in the financial independence community would go you're insane you're tying that money up for decades don't do that Mm. it's over here so both of them are right both of those things can can work so which one is right if they're completely polar opposites that uh, that depends on you Mm. that depends on your goals so whenever you read something you will be able to find the alternative opinion somewhere (laughs) it is definitely worth looking for people who are independent qualified preferably Um, and when I say independent they're not trying to sell you a financial product Um, you know they're not saying hey get into property investing and hey look at this I've got this fantastic property investment opportunity for you over here Um, but thinking critically about your source and then looking for the alternatives and really bringing it down to what works for you I think is important if not essential Mm. really Um, because if you don't go with what's aligned with your values and your beliefs that's when you make mistakes you know, the people who hate debt that go into invest- investing in property because they were told they had to do it and then they, they stuff it all up because they're so scared. Um, mm. Even though it could have been the best investment in the world, they still freak out. Don't do that. Yeah. You know, do the thing that's mm. right for you. But that means you actually have to think about what's right for you. So it takes more time up front, but you're going to get a better result. Mm. And and just knowing your own the way you're going to react to things and that's something you can't always test until you dive in the deep end. But I think it comes back to really thinking and exploring different opinions and seeing how different ideas fit with you. Exactly. I totally agree. Mm. Now, before we wrap up, I wanted to know um, where can people go to learn more about you, your journey, your book, Money School, and uh, get their hands on a copy? Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Um, the best place to go is moneyschool.org.au. And there's lots of free blogs on there. We've got a financial independence calculator you can play with and you can find the links to buy the book as well. And I'll share that for the show notes. And, of course, we run events occasionally. So please join the email list. And we've got an exciting one coming up, which is this money debates idea where we're going to pull apart some of these sacred cows. But, yeah, jump onto the website and come say hi and send me your questions. Yeah, I'm really, really excited for the debates. Um, I think two weeks' time? Yeah, yes, I think we kick off the 24th of August with all the educational content and then the 31st of August we'll be having the debates each evening and it's going to be a lot of fun. Mm, And I think that's something we probably don't do enough of in real life, actually sort of 
toss ideas back and forward and look at both sides of them because most people are just going to be fierce advocates for one or the other yeah. because maybe that's what their job is telling them to do or some, <laughs> their background exactly. or their, what they studied. So I'm, I'm really excited to actually listen to some of them. Um, I think some of the topics like um, about whether money should be taught in, like financial education should be taught in schools mm-hmm. and whether banks should be allowed in. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's going to be an interesting one. It's good. It's been, we, made it, we made the criteria when we approached the speakers, do not pick a topic that you are sitting on the fence about. We don't want to hear you're on the fence. We want to pick you. Pick the one that the side that you are most closest to. Um, so yeah. that's the that's going to be fun. So there there are a few of them that are a bit uncomfortable. Like, oh, I don't really want to say that that's absolutely wrong. I'm like, it's okay. It's going to be a debate. People know what a debate means. We we are forcing you to take a side. But yeah, we will explore yeah. in some depth things that you might not traditionally hear. Because I know when I write a blog, I try to be quite balanced, present both sides mm-hmm. of the stories, and I think a lot of people do that. It'll be fun yeah. to have some people going on the absolute extreme ends. And I think that allows you to really test an idea. And I hope our audience will be listening and thinking, hmm, what works for me as we go through it? Yeah, and it might give people a lot more ideas. So I'm certainly linked to that in the show notes as well. So people can check that out. And it's only $11. So there's absolutely no harm in signing up. There's it's yeah. the cheapest conference I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yeah, well, we did it as an experiment. We thought we'd keep it cheap so that people can come in, uh, and, and see if they like it. And we've just had such an overwhelming response. 40-odd speakers now we're up to. It's incredible. Um, it's delightful to see such excitement in the community about it as well. I really hope this will help people explore these ideas and decide what works for them. Yeah, I'm very excited. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the Australian Finance Podcast today, Lacey. Oh, thanks for having me, Kate. It's been delightful. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.